I want to begin with the question today, uh, what are you working for? And by working, I, I mean literally your work, what you get paid for, or maybe you don't get paid for it, but you're working. Perhaps you're a housemaker, uh, a homemaker, that is your work as well. What are you working for? Um, I already heard some, some adoration and some little giggles looking at this picture up here. These were my kids about five years ago. Um, my son was about five and my daughter, sorry, six, and my daughter was three. And they had the inspiration, unsolicited. They said, Mom, Dad, we want to make a lemonade stand. It was in the summer. It was a hot day, I remember. And so they put up, uh, they had this little setup in that cute little sign with the, the misspelled word lemonade. And they said, uh, they set a price point of 10 cents. And I got to hand it to them. They persevered. <laughs> They sat out there for two hours with not one customer <laughs> that came by. Yeah. And, you know, the whole time, you know, I, first I encouraged them. Well, after two hours, I was like, okay, I, I, I need to help them out here. And um, I wanted them to be successful. And, and, and so I said, okay, you guys got the cuteness thing going for you. You guys got pink lemonade, which is different from regular lemonade, so it's a neat, different, you know, unique product, and so forth. I gave them all the strengths and encouragements, because my wife, Linda, has coached me well and often three stars and then a wish, right? Uh, and then I said, but, and right there, both their demeanor just changed. Okay, what are you about to say, right? I said, well, in business, it's all about location, Right? You, you need to go where, like, have you noticed no one has walked by? And without even giving me a chance to explain a bit more, my son, he was the most sensitive about this, he just stood up from that chair and said, you are crushing my dreams, Dad. <laughs> and he just stomped back into the house. And then it took another whole few hours just to calm him down and be reconciled, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's a, a, a child's frustration with work. And, and when you ask, what are you working for? I mean, he thought, I, I, apparently he had a dream of becoming a lemonade tycoon. Um, but we're no different as adults. And so if I ask you, what are you working for? What are you working for? As you go in and out day by day, you go through the grind. Sometimes you get barked at by a coworker or your, your boss or, or things just don't work out the way you thought. What, what are you working for? What are you getting? What are you spending? What are you spending it on? What, what are you accomplishing? And with what meaning in all of this? Today, I want to offer you a, a summary thought, uh, and I like to give this summary thought in the form of a short prayer. And so no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, even if you haven't placed your faith in Christ yet today, uh, at some point, when you consider this man, Jesus Christ, in history who declares himself as the Son of God who died for our sins on the cross in your place, it's where the rubber meets the road is that you're going to want to pray to him. And so I offer you these words, whether perhaps even today, to pray these words as a confession of faith or down the road in the future. And for my, my brother and sister in Christ, this is a prayer that needs to be rhythmic in our lives, to, to be praying this heart attitude towards God and Christ each and every day. And this is the summary. This is the prayer. Lord, help me to be content with Christ. Help me to be content with Christ, period. 
For the rest of our time together today, I want to ask three more questions I think help unpack uh, today's passage and, and help us see this big picture thought and prayer. First, what, what was Solomon discontented with? Because certainly we see it today. Next, how does Jesus quiet our discontentment? How is Jesus the answer? And even though Jesus specifically isn't mentioned in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes there, right almost smack in the middle of the Bible, almost God saying, these are important questions to ask, and you need to look outside, left and right of Ecclesiastes, to the Old Testament, to the New Testament, for the greater answer that Ecclesiastes is asking. And finally, how do I practice contentment with Christ? So let's move on and let's ask, what was Solomon discontented with? And the first thing we see today is that Solomon saw that life is not fair. I appreciate Solomon's honesty. He looks out upon life, and now reading verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth, a meaninglessness, if you will, that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are people living, trying to live a good, honest life, put in an honest day's hard work, and there's injustice. They're not being treated properly. They're not being rewarded properly. Or bad things happen to good people. And to frustrate Solomon, there are wicked people. People who intentionally are immoral, cut corners, treat people poorly. To whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. They end up getting recognized. They end up getting rewarded and having a good life, at least according to worldly standards. And Solomon observes this, and this was approximately 3,000 years ago, and I contend that it's been no different even before Solomon and now in 21st century, living life here in a major urban city in Toronto. This is still the same, is it not? Life is not fair at times. Now when we look at the whole scheme of Scripture, we know, we, we, we can explain this because we go back to the original blueprint when everything was pristine, untouched, untainted by man's rebellion and sin and all the consequences of sin, God's curse on this existence because of sin and disobedience, in creation before the fall, and by fall we mean the fall of man, his moral fall, we were meant to be properly rewarded for good work. That's the system that God had set up, and he was happy to reward his children for their obedience and to bless them with an eternal life and perfect relationships with one another and with each other. And, and work was joyful. Work was so joyful that even work was rest. And to have the fruit of their labor, to, to enjoy it sweetly. But we know that because of sin and Adam and Eve's disobedience and man's ongoing rebellion against God, that blueprint and even our, what we were created with by God, his image in us, it was just ripped down the middle. And so now the reward system is unfair. There are injustices. It's corrupted and broken. And even between us and God, even though we do a certain amount of good, it's not enough to be rewarded with eternal life. It's not enough to be rewarded the good life that he always intended. Now this strikes close to home these days, especially even in our church family here. Because within our church family, there are several situations of, of specifically uh, struggling health or, or very um, fragile health situations. And as I found myself praying for, 
for our family, our church family, and those people in those situations, what just comes up naturally. I'm not saying that this is necessarily the right prayer, but what just comes up in my, just me trying to be honest as a human being before God, it's almost like I want to defend these people and say, God, these are good people. As much as I know them, and even their stories, some of their stories have so much pain and struggle in their past, but, but humbly and by your grace, having clung to you by faith, and not rejecting you despite whatever pains in the past, and following you humbly and daily, why are you letting this happen to them? It's not fair, God. It's not fair. And so I appreciate Solomon looking out on life and observing that life is not fair. Life is not fair. Now Solomon then, in this discontentment because life is not fair, what does he do? He tries to console himself by enjoying himself. And so he quickly moves on in verse 15, and I appreciate how one friend tries to understand how to read Ecclesiastes. It's almost like Solomon's journal, just his journal entries. And, and so he quickly transitions to another thought in verse 15. And so because life is so unfair, life is so difficult, and even unfairness might, might settle upon you, misfortunately, He says, then, therefore, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. I want to offer you two images to try to help understand what Solomon is saying here. If you know the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe, the story goes that there were four siblings, and Lucy is one of the siblings, and because of World War II, Uh, and they're set in London, and the bombings are happening, they're uh, evacuated to the countryside and to the stranger's estate mansion. And life is dreary there, even though they're safe. It's dreary. It's boring. And then eventually one day, because they're trying to kill their boredom, they play hide-and-seek, and Lucy goes exploring, and she discovers this wardrobe. And the story goes that as she goes into the wardrobe initially to hide, It leads her to this magical land. And I think what Solomon is saying in some sense is like that. We are in this broken life, this dreary life, this mansion. And he's saying, well, at least try to find some enjoyment. Try to find some. Go and find the game to play. Go and find whatever food to eat, whatever company to have. And even that word better there's nothing better. It, it's, it's just the word for good that we see even, and, and the original listener, the Jewish listener, would think back to where they hear that first, where they heard that word for the first time is when God created this universe and it was good. That's what it would, the memory that it would strike. And so these moments, perhaps you've had this moment too, even though life is not going well, you're able to have that unadulterated, just even one moment of bliss with that friend or family member that you love and perhaps just sharing a meal. Maybe it's even just a simple meal, but just that fellowship, that company, it's so good in that moment, no matter what is going on around you. That's what Solomon is is describing here. That although life is so bad, although life is unfair, that you should try to have these moments of joy enjoying life with those around you. 
And so Solomon's consolation and his discontentment was to enjoy himself. And so he, he commends this joy, and so much so that this joy is powerful enough to carry you through your toil. And that's why he describes, for this will go with him. As you have those moments of enjoyment, to be eating and drinking and being with the ones that you love, those pure moments of bliss, even if it's fleeting, that this is enough to carry you through your difficult toil. But I want you to notice as well that he describes, he does, his focus isn't just on those little giblets of happiness, but all this, it's from God. To my friend here that hasn't placed their faith in Christ yet, Solomon would, would preach to you, would hold out to you, and what the Bible certainly holds out to you as a message is that all your blessings, all the good gifts in your life, even if you don't acknowledge God, that they are from God. Solomon, just in, in short, punchy ways as well, though, he wants us to notice one more thing. And throughout the book, he uses this description, under the sun. And here we see that Solomon's in discontentment. His consolation was to enjoy himself. But then, so first, there's this, this pattern. He sees that life is unfair. He's having discontentment. But then he tries to quiet that discontentment by enjoying himself. But now what he's honestly saying is that even enjoying himself, it's not enough. Solomon's enjoyment was not enough. And we see that first in this little clue. He's, he's speaking like a sage. And so he wants us to notice these, this phrase that he repeats throughout the book, under the sun, under the sun. All of us are living life under the sun, and that means a few things. First, that life is temporary. Life, your life is mortal. There's an expiration date. And so even though you have as much enjoyment as you could afford, it's not enough. And he goes on to describe this enjoyment that being not enough in verse 16 when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth and that word business literally means just your work as you're going about your work day to day through the grind of it all how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep now of course he doesn't mean this literally because people sleep even if you're having a stressed week and there's a project deadline maybe you'll only get two hours of sleep a day but you still sleep so here he's speaking metaphorically he's saying that deep in everyone's heart if you're honest and you finally just let yourself quiet down let's say after an intense project and then your boss says okay take a few days off and you're at home and you're like what do I do with myself you're you're only used to being busy and and if you let yourself quiet down then you realize there's this restlessness there. You, you can't rest. And so even his enjoyment was not enough. And the only way that Solomon can explain it is to say, in this restlessness, then I saw all the work of God. Then I saw all the work of God. What, what could he mean by that? For starters, I think he's trying to put some responsibility on God that even this restlessness that I feel is partly God's doing. It's his design. And we see that. We see that. I, one thing I love, uh, one way I love to read the Bible 
is to try to connect the dots. God has been writing a grand story from Genesis to Revelation, and, and God has been weaving together consistent themes throughout the whole Bible. And I encourage you to approach the Bible that way, too, in your own reading, to, to try to connect these dots of God's major themes. And so let me show you another dot way back in Genesis. And there's a man named Lamech, and he was the father of Noah. Noah and the ark Noah, the famous Noah. And Lamech, when Noah was born, he foretold the purpose of Noah's life. And he says of Noah, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. So let's pause there. Even our forefathers of faith, Noah's father Lamech, he recognized that the difficulty of this life, the unfairness of this life, the toil of this life is because the ground has been cursed by God. And we know it's been cursed by God not because he's a malevolent God, not because he's just this cranky old God trying to make someone's life miserable for no reason, but because man rebelled, man sinned. And now there are consequences for that disobedience. And he declared a curse over humanity and our existence. And so Lamech, understanding that, he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, meaning Noah, will bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And God attempted a first reboot of the whole system, if you will, just like when your computer, something's going wonky, good, at least first attempt is just to reboot the whole thing. And, and God attempted that through Noah, didn't fully work. And so even these words, we know it, it must be pointed to someone greater. And so Solomon's enjoyment, getting back to the point that it was not enough. And he begins to describe just how we experience that not enoughness. However much man may toil in seeking. That, that's a neat word there, in seeking. It's a spiritual word. It's a spiritual seeking. All of us, we, we're looking for meaning as we go about our everyday work. Whatever we're working for, whatever we're trying to get, whatever we're trying to spend on, whatever accomplishment, whatever meaning that, that we try to create for ourselves, we're, we're trying to find something to connect deep with our souls and to be satisfied, some state of worship. And so no, no matter how much man struggles and toils and strives to even find spiritual meaning, he will not find it. And he goes on to say, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it. That, for some reason, just immediately reminded me of that classic children's tale, The Emperor and His Clothes. And if you're not familiar with the story, there were these two con men came to this rich emperor, and they said they had the, the most precious thread. And it was nothing. It was invisible. But they, they said only the smartest people, the people who... Uh, know anything at all, can see this beautiful thread. And the king, because of his ego, didn't want to acknowledge that he can't see anything. And so they wove together. They just did air motions, weaving together the emperor's beautiful clothes. And the emperor, wanting to believe that this is not wanting to look foolish, he motioned putting on these clothes. And as he walked about before his people, exposed. Then finally, a child, a child, an innocent child, just shouts out, He's wearing no clothes. And the whole point of the story is that sometimes we, really, there's, we're exposed, but we want to somehow cover it up with, with our own thoughts, with our own ideas. And when Solomon says here, even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In our lives, in our culture, our society, 
We do so many things. We get more things. We spend on more things. We try to accomplish more things. We try to create our own meanings to things to cover up where we feel exposed. And so I appreciate David Atkinson. This is from his commentary on Genesis, but still very relevant to Ecclesiastes' message today. And, and he labels it shame, this feeling of there's something exposed. And we want to cover it. And it says shame and those moments of emptiness. And this is where Solomon would relate. He looks out on life and it's empty. It's vanity. It's unfair and it's all meaningless. These moments of emptiness are that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. We know there is something wrong with us, but we can't admit it or identify it. There is a deep restlessness. What Solomon described as a man's eyes see no sleep, which can take various forms, guilt and striving to prove ourselves, rebellion and the need to assert our independence, compliance and the need to please others. Something is wrong and we may know the effects but we fall short of understanding the true causes. So what do we do in those moments? This is where we have to ask the question, how does Jesus quiet our discontentment? How does Jesus quiet our discontentment? How does he uniquely stand out from all the other worldviews of history past? And so we go back and even Solomon, whether unwittingly or, or intentionally, he left us little clues that if we follow these little clues to the rest of the Bible that there's something beautiful and grand for us to receive. See, Solomon, going back to verse 15, he needed, he needed as much as Solomon focused on under the sun, life under the sun, unfairness of life and the brokenness of life under the sun, Solomon needed joy from God above the sun. That's the whole point of him continually saying, focus on life under the sun because in a sage-like manner, a good teacher, for us to think outside of the box, for us to look beyond and discover and to finally stop and think, well, you keep talking about life under the sun. Is there life above the sun? And Solomon, he needed God. He needed God himself to reveal this joy. Because even in his own searching as a member of the people of God, of ethnic Israel, even though he had the law and, 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 and just God being on his side in, in that sense, being part of Israel, he needed God to reveal this joy to him. And so this reminds me, this reminds me, just fast forwarding to the New Testament, I could have pointed to so many other scriptures and words, but this one really uh, just struck a chord in my heart. And this is Jesus, Jesus himself. And he says, all things, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Let's pause there. What Jesus is saying is the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and and. I could make an argument, but basically the Holy Spirit too. We won't get into fully arguing that. But God, within God, no one would truly know who he is and what his heart is unless, and that's why Jesus says, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Even Jesus here is declaring 
that if you want to know this deep, lasting joy, it needs to be revealed to you by God. Solomon needed God to reveal this to him. And I love how Jesus brings us all together. The, the whole focus of it is, come to me. Come to me, all who labor. It's almost as if he was speaking back to Solomon a thousand years before him. I see that because of your work, your labor, you are tired. You see unfairness in life. You see injustices. You are struggling with your own um, weaknesses, and, and you want to keep growing, but you don't see progress. Come to me. All you are working and striving and toiling and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so we even think of Lamech. His son Noah didn't finally fulfill that, that prophecy. We look forward and forward and forward, and Lamech, maybe even without knowing, was looking for Jesus. Now, this is so important. This is, this is an unnatural message to, to us today. Because even as I've been visiting my father-in-law at Sunnybrook, let me pause and first make a very clear disclaimer. I love about us, about humanity, about human beings through history that we have had a, a, a rigor. We have had an ambition. We have, had, uh, we have fought through difficulty and sicknesses and diseases and, and, and wanting to make the most of life and a spirit to win. That is something good of humanity. And I love and I love and I love that when I go to Sunnybrook, they have plastered everywhere these wonderfully, powerfully motivational thoughts. This is one of them that's in my uh, father-in-law's unit. And they have many posters with this logo, where impossible, meaning at Sunnybrook, where impossible becomes I'm possible. And that is motivating. And they have all these testimonies of people, real-life people, who have overcome ailments and sicknesses and so forth with the help of science and medicine to become possible and to have a longer life and a good life. And that is beautiful. That is beautiful. And as humanity, we will fight to the death to overcome impossibilities. But therein lies my point, and I think Solomon's point, and certainly Scripture's point. We can fight until death. And then, then there's a, a battle that we cannot win. And this statement, it can be good up until that point. I'm possible. I can actualize, I can become, I can overcome. In our culture, we have so many stories, we have so many narratives. These are just four sort of major narratives that, that we try to convince ourselves, cover ourselves. It's our emperor's clothes. That if I'm just a good person, if I just love my neighbor, or some of us, we're beyond that, we're, we're just admittedly, we're unashamedly selfish, it's all about me. As long as I feel good and I can become everything that I need to be. Or some of us, we truly believe that science and technology can solve everything. That it can truly create a utopia. And some of us, it's just all about deep inside, be true to yourself and be courageous about being true to yourself. You against the world, live true to yourself. And whatever you are feeling or thinking, whatever makes sense for you, just live by it courageously. And those are our culture's stories, our culture's narratives, and we 
Those are emperor's clothes, so to speak. But what the gospel is inviting you and me to, what Jesus, when he says, come to me, all you are tired from all your work, and that I'll give you rest, the gospel story is inviting you and me to live this out, that God, he's most glorified. He's most glorified in us, and we'll experience the truest glory when we are most glad in Christ. That's why we say over and over again at Trinity Grace, be glad. It's not just a random gladness, but being glad because you find yourself in Jesus' story. So how can I practice this? How can I practice this contentment with Christ? First, believe that Jesus will reward you for your work unfairly and fairly. I'm intentionally trying to confuse you. <laughs> I want you to want to just try taking a page from Solomon's notes and speaking in a sage-like way. Believe Jesus will reward you for your work first unfairly. Let, let, what do I mean by that? Because no matter how much good you do, our, our Christian faith is that we can never be good enough. We can never love our neighbor enough. We can never love God enough to be rewarded properly. That system broke. But what the gospel mind-blowingly declares is that when we place our faith in Jesus, then Jesus' perfect righteousness, his perfect work on the cross and to overcoming death through the resurrection, it's placed on us. It's imputed on us. It, 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 it becomes our identity. And so when we stand before God on that final day, we don't deserve being welcomed into heaven. We don't deserve all his eternal blessings. We don't deserve the love of the Father. But because of Christ, God in that sense unfairly rewards you. Unfair. This is a beautiful unfairness. And then for the Christian, after we pass that judgment without just a scratch because of Christ's righteousness, then God rewards us for our good works as well. Not, for our, not giving us salvation, but as he welcomes his children, all the good work that we've done, he'll redeem it, and we don't have time to get into the whole theology of it today, but in, simply put, he rewards his children as we spend eternity with him. And for those who have not placed their faith in Christ before that point, I don't like to say this, but I must say it because the Bible says it. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ, then there will be eternal punishment. So first, day to day, day by day, renew that. Pray that again. Lord, I place my faith in you. The whole point is this, that you would be enamored. You would be just amazed at God's unfair grace in your life once again. Just try living with that first thought every day. It will help you become thankful. It will help you to see the people in your life differently. It will help you approach sticky situations differently. A second practice, eat, drink, and be joyful. Solomon was looking for this enjoyment, to eat and drink and be joyful. Put it in certain modern terms, he was saying, be a foodie, right? And be a foodie with the people you love. Eat, drink, and be joyful. But the practice that I want to give you is to eat, drink, and be joyful supremely, first literally, at the Lord's table. Today we observe the Lord's table at 9.30 in the morning, and I encourage 
just more and more people to come join us for that too, first and third uh, Sundays at 9.30. And every other Sunday we observe it at this service. But first, come to the Lord's table. What, the eating and drinking that Solomon was ultimately looking for was this literal experience of coming to the Lord's table, taking this bread and cup, and realizing as we eat this meal with, the fam- with family in Christ that this is the height of joy on this earth before Christ returns. And it's a, it's a picture, it's a small picture of all that is to come. But also eat, drink, and be joyful supremely at the Lord's table moment by moment. And so the Lord's table can also become a lens in life, an attitude towards life. But as you go about your day, as David prays in Psalm 23, that you've prepared a table before me, and he's walking through the shadow of the valley of death, no matter what he is going through, he's, what's in his mind, the lens that he looks out to his life, upon his life with, is that God has blessed him. God is redeeming him. And this is a sure promise that God, the Father's love for him is sure. And so we can be like Lucy, even though life may feel dreary in that dark home and there's a war going on outside. We can be like Lucy as we search and discover that wonderful land, meaning land of the life with Christ. As we spend time with our friends and family and making a toast or enjoying that meal, no matter how uh, just elaborate it is or how simple it is. It could be just a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. But as you come to it with a lens of the Lord's table that God has poured out his immense blessing in your life, that becomes a king's meal to enjoy. As you go to work, to know that you are working for the king and as we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth, you can eat, drink, and be joyful supremely day by day at the Lord's table, moment by moment. And and this is a perspective, this is an attitude that we're meant to carry with us, that we can carry with us, that the Holy Spirit will help us to be reminded of, moment by moment. And so, third, and finally, just a way to practice this, coming back to where we started today, just pray. Lord, help me to be content with Christ. Not even in Christ as as like a worldview or as, as a mentality, but with the person Jesus. Christianity is all about your abiding in this person, Jesus. Praying to him, reading his word, sitting at his feet in quietness, meditating on these words, and taking in God's promises that are yes and amen through Christ and sealed by his blood, and making them your own, owning them, and letting your hope change and become bolstered and strengthened because of these promises. Lord, help me to be content with Christ. And so I love how this Norwegian hymn, author unknown, but it's a Norwegian hymn, I love how it summarizes today's message beautifully. My faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one, meaning the person, Jesus. His wounds for me shall plead. Enough for me. Enough. That Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. I need no other argument. 
I need no other plea. It is enough. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Amen.